0: Father, this morning some of us need to hear those words. Find ourselves in storms, so may you be the mountain to where we run, the fountain that we drink from. May you be the shadow, Lord, where we hide, and be for us the anchor in our waves, because we know that you're good and that you'll never let us down. So may we live into that reality. Thank you this morning as we worshiped you. for the reminder of who you are. We give thanks in the name of Jesus, the Good Shepherd. Amen. You may be seated. So we are going to continue with the series that we're doing on the Disciples' Rhythm. Um, if if you haven't been here the last few weeks, we, Lisa printed up some um, cards for us just as a reminder of this rhythm that we're going to, that we want to follow Jesus' pattern, we want to live into that rhythm, and so if you don't have one of these, I've got some up here on the stage that you can come up and, and grab after the service. There's also a notes page out in the seats if you're... Interested in taking notes on this? Um, I've said the last few weeks to me, this is very foundational stuff. This is bedrock, um, always has been, as we've done ministry with students, and then moving here, that this is um, has just been central in my own thinking and the way that we've we've tried to live and approach things. And that's this rhythm from Christ to community into cause. Um, just read. Last week, I think it was last week or two weeks ago, um, a new survey that's out from Cigna that was released based on some research from UCLA. And it was about loneliness in our culture. And here's what they said that nearly half of Americans feel alone. I think it's 48%, if I remember right. Two in five Americans feel they don't have any meaningful relationships. One in five don't feel close to anyone. Only half of those who who were surveyed reported having any deep social connections. And the loneliest generation they found is Gen Z, the youngest generation. Second loneliest generation, what would you guess? The millennials, the most connected generations in history digitally, the most lonely generations um, that we've had. In fact, of those two generations, a sociologist has said that… I mean, like any human being, they long to be loved, but those two generations in particular fear to be known, fear of being known, and so long to be loved, but that fear of being known helps, keeps um, some distance. We all are created, we all long to belong, as somebody said, and the reality is I think a lot of modern people are starving for authentic, genuine community. And so that's what we're going to do this morning is we're going to do the middle of these two. We want to talk about community, the second part of the rhythm that Jesus lived. And, you know, in the text that we were looking at that this is all based on is Luke 6, 12 to 19, where we see the rhythm of his life, that he lived from time with the Father, solitude, then into community, and then into ministry. Um, He lived, that was the pattern of his life, from solitude to community to ministry. He lived a connected life. He was vitally connected to God, vitally connected to others in community, and He was vitally connected to the world on mission, extending love to the world. And so, this is to be our rhythm, that we live our life from Christ to community to cause. Um, Another way to say it, up, in, and out, and that's what the fully devoted life looks like. Um, We are to have passionate spirituality, be an authentic community, and we're to have missional zeal. And so, Obviously, since I started with loneliness, this week is about community. Um, that out life, no, not the out life, sorry. That should be the in life there. We could get this little thing and color that in. That's the one that should be colored in right there. Um, yeah, or this. I heard a new one of what this was. I'd heard last week, lollipops, pepperoni pizza, crop circles, most saw the grapes um, and now it just lost me. What was the one I heard this week that was, um, oh, a lion, that that was a lion. That's actually a pretty creative one, don't you think, the lion? So, but this one's pretty obvious. Everybody knows what this one is back here, up here? Yeah, looks like trees. Good job, Jason. Cath carts are supposed to be over here, by the way. You know, that's <laughs> like you've thrown the whole rhythm of my life off this morning, so... So that's what we want to focus on. When we go to that text, it says that when, G- when the morning came, he called his disciples to him and he chose 12 of them, whom he also designated sent ones. That's all apostle meant. They were sent ones. And then it lists the 12, and then it says that at the bottom, he went down with them and he stood on a level place and a large crowd of his disciples were there. So he had the 12, but there was even a larger crowd of disciples. Um and what we learn is, is that Jesus spent a significant amount of time with those people, the vast majority of His life in community with them. And that close-knit community with His followers, it was an essential element of His life. They knew one another each, each deeply. They served one another. They loved each other passionately. They did life together like a family. Um, in John 3.22, it says He spent time with them. And I love the Greek word. It's um, diatribo which means Diaz to beside and Tribo was to rub, that he was like rubbing against them, rubbing beside them all the time, um, side by side, shoulder to shoulder, life on life. That's how he lived with them. And that's the life that he modeled, not just time with the Father, but time together in community. Um, and it wasn't just him. He invited them into this lifestyle. Anytime he sent them out, he always sent them out as two, right? Never alone. Always a two. Even something as insignificant as sending, going, having somebody go into Jerusalem to get the donkey for the triumphal entry, he doesn't send one, but he sends two. So this was the, the pattern that he was teaching, them. And as we've been saying, Jesus is our model, and so it was not just his rhythm, but it's to be our rhythm. It's the disciples' rhythm. Um, so if he placed a high priority on relationships, we should place a high priority. Um, We all need community, we know that. We're not called to go alone, and we all long to know and to be known, and we long to, to love and to be loved. So today I want to focus on Acts, the book of Acts, because to me the key text on community is Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4, and I'd like you to stand with me as we read the Word of God. So join me as we read Acts 2, 42 to 47. they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. After praying, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God, boldly. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them, For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I mean, as we read that, don't you get a sense that they learned well, at least initially, of his value of community? And of living it out together, even as after he had ascended back to his Father, Um, I love this text, and in this text I see nine components that should mark our lives in community. Nine things that, if if we're a healthy Jesus community, I think these nine things will be the mark of that kind of community. Never perfect, but these are the nine marks of a healthy community. And by the way, if you ever leave. Here, move to another community or something. And if you're looking for a healthy church, to me, these are the things that I always taught students when they're going home to their country. These are the things that I recommended they look for in a community. And before I get into the nine, I just want to show you something really interesting. What's, I don't know, when we read that text, what's the second word that Luke used of this community of people? They what? Yeah, they devoted themselves, and then He's going to continue. And you remember when, if I, if you were to look at this, in the center of the triangle, the up in and out, that is the, the fully devoted life. And I talked about how that um, that's one of the things that's a goal of my life, that I take three steps towards and then two steps back and three towards and two back, but is to have a fully devoted heart. And so I love the fact that the word used to describe them was devotion, that they had to devotion. And I think they had to devotion to all nine of these things. So, let's jump in. Um, And these are on, if you're a note taker, again, they're on here. The nine things are on this. And the first one is this that I notice is that they were grounded in worship. We're told in verse 43 that everyone was filled with awe. Um, In 46 and 47 that they broke bread praising God. And then 42 that they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. The breaking of bread actually has a double meaning um, because when they did the Eucharist or communion or the Lord's Supper together, they actually did it as a meal because Jesus did it in the context of a meal. So, they would have a meal together. They would break bread. And in the context of breaking bread, they would remember the Lord's death with the bread and the, the wine, the bread and the grape juice. So, they were regularly... Remembering his death um, through that supper and praising God was something that they were, that was so, so significant to them um, that to me they were grounded in it. So a healthy church worships and adores God, their Father, in song and in spirit. And while there's a, there's a healthier sense and of respect and awe for God of his greatness, and we just sang of his goodness of Him being the King of my heart, that He's great, but that He's also good. And so, worship, authentic worship, sincerity of heart, is an important marker of a healthy community that follows Jesus. The second one would be, to me, is that they're dedicated to the Word of the Lord. And if if you're looking at the text on here, if you're looking up here in 242, it says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. I believe the Bible is the primary way God communicates to us. He communicates in other ways. He's the Lord and is free to talk to me in any way He chooses, but I really believe that His Word is the foundation, the starting point for me and my relationship with Him and that communication. And a healthy church centers its beliefs and its practices on the Word of God, that the way we think, the way we filter life should come through the Word of God. I still remember Jason several years ago preached. And I think, did you have a filter of some kind? And then I brought a fake thing, I don't know, a year ago, because I like the idea so much, but that it's so easy to, if this is the Word of God, it's easy to filter the Word of God through my experience or my life, but that's not how it's intended to be. It's intended to be, I filter my life through the Word of God, that the Word of God is the thing that determines how I think and look at life and the way I live. The Bible's to be our roadmap and our touchstone, and it was in that early community, and It's been that way the whole time 12th Avenue's been here, and as long as I'm here, it's going to continue to be that. The Word of God is central. So, worship, the Word of God. Third is they were established in prayer. We're told that they devoted themselves to prayer. And then in chapter 4, what we read, after praying, the place where they were meeting was shaken. There was just a strong emphasis on prayer in that body. Um... I think if you, the thing I hear most often from Christians and pastors is if there was a spiritual discipline they struggle with the most, prayer seems to be the one that's common, and none of us, and even as a body, we're never probably where we should be with this, but this is something that we're even wanting to work on, Um, and there will be some stuff we'll be doing in the near future related to this, but they were established in prayer, that communion with God was important. Liberated from strongholds was the next one, because we're told in Acts 2.43 that many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. They were being liberated from the strongholds in their lives. Um, Strongholds can come in many forms. They can be emotional, they can be physical, they can be spiritual, Um, but they were seeing liberation from these things. And Jesus is still in the business of liberating people from the strongholds in their lives. The things emotionally that tie me down, the things spiritually that tie me down, the sins that I struggle with so much that He can liberate me from those things. Um, He can still do healings from illness or other things in my life. There's something I do want to say about this because anytime this comes up, the question anybody ought to ask is, why do we not see the kinds of miracles and wonders and miraculous signs that they saw in the early church? Or that we hear about in other cultures? Remember when Brian Hogan was here this fall for the missions conference and he talked about the, the wonders that they saw in Mongolia? Um, that's a question I think people always have, like, is God not working in the same way here? Are we doing something wrong? And how many of you were here, I'm curious, were here on Friday night when the basketball tournament was going on. He spoke to that group. How many of you were here on that Friday night and heard him? Did you hear his thing? So, at halftime, he talked with the guys, and one of the things he mentioned, he talked about his work in Mongolia and the wonders and miracles that they saw there. And he said he's frequently asked that question, why do we not see those in our churches and in our culture anymore? Um, And what I'm going to share, I thought was actually pretty profound, and it comes from somebody who's been there and who's seen it and somebody who's working here and who's going back and forth in those cultures. And what was interesting is he's from California, and he referenced redwood trees. Though I will say to my great shame, I realized this morning that's a sequoia, not a redwood. For those of, if Skylar's here, Skyler would point that out to me, but because um, sequoias are fatter and anyways, but he, he said in a redwood tree that the system that delivers water and nutrients up and down the tree from roots and to the leaves and all of that, unlike a lot of trees, it just runs in the very outer edge of the tree, um, in the bark and just underneath the bark. It's it's unique in that form. And he says, if you want to cut off, if you want to kill a redwood tree, all you have to do is cut off that delivery system and it will die. And so if if you'll simply around a redwood, if you would just cut a half inch thick all the way around the diameter, you're cutting off the lifeblood and it can no longer get the nutrients and a redwood tree will die. And what he said was, is he said he thinks he, he can show this biblically and I think I could show you too also from Hebrews 2 of the purpose of miracles, part of the purpose. Um, What he said was is that miraculous signs, you find them primarily on the frontier and the cutting edge of God's kingdom, wherever it's spreading into new territory and it's needing to get established, that it's needing um, authentication so that people in totally different religions or worldviews see an authentication that this is the truth, that he said, you will see more signs and wonders, he believes, on that on the outer edge of what God's doing in the kingdom, and once there's established wood, not that God doesn't do anything and can't liberate us from strongholds, but that once that truth is authenticated and accepted in a culture, that God works more through the truth of His Word and His people. Um, so, just throwing that idea out. I thought it was a fascinating take on the topic, because I've often asked that question, why do we not see more of this kind of stuff? And that's what That's what he says. So, liberated from strongholds. Um, Next, they foster deep koinonia. The word fellowship in here um, is the word koinonia in Acts chapter 2 in the Greek. Um, I don't know, when I first became a Christian, this was a word I heard a lot. In the 70s, I think it was thrown out, or 80s around. I don't know if it is so much anymore. Um, But everybody was longing to have deep koinonia. It just refers to deep intimacy and connection, to deep loving unity. Um, I don't know if you've noticed, but on the word community up here, I've got that word underlined because that's what koinonia it is, it's intimacy. We're told they devoted themselves to the fellowship and the breaking of bread. And again, the breaking of bread wasn't just having communion, it meant they were gathering together, which we'll see in a minute, in homes regularly, having meals, eating together, sharing food in common, sharing their lives in common. And that's what verse 44 says, that all the believers were together and they had everything in common everything in common. All the believers, we're told, were one in heart and mind. So this is really significant in a healthy Jesus community. And we're told that every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts, that they broke bread in their homes, um, that they ate together with glad and sincere hearts. So they were spending a lot of time together. They took seriously Hebrews 10, 24 to 25, where we're told to let us consider how we may consider how can we spur one another toward love and good deeds, and that we're not to give up meeting together as some in their habit of doing, but we are to rather encourage one another. They took this seriously. So a healthy church is a place where deep love happens, lasting relationships are apparent. It's where people enjoy being together, where they meet together in smaller groups to get to know each other. They support each other, encourage each other to grow in their faith. And it's a place where there's unity of spirit and of purpose. Something I think is significant is it says they met two locations. You guys see them? What are the two places that they met together? What's the first one? What's that? Temple courts and homes. So they met in communities both large and small. And I think this is very significant, very significant. Because I am convinced that authentic, life-transforming community requires both. It requires meeting in large community, and it requires meeting in small community. So they met in the temple courts, which would have been a space for very large gatherings, and they also met in homes. Probably from what I've read of homes in the first century, 15 would have been the max that would have been in an average home. That would have been packed out. The probably 8 to 15 was the size of house churches. And that's all they had. They had the temple in Jerusalem, and then they had house churches where they met. I think this is really significant, and I always do an exercise I've always done with students that I want to do with you, because both of these gatherings, large and small, they do different things in my life, so I want you guys to help me. Tell me some things that happen in here in this larger gathering that don't happen in a small gathering. What are some things that happen in a large gathering? that can't happen in a small gathering? And again, remember, I'm an old man. I just turned 56 this week, so my hearing is continuing to go away. So what's some things that happen in here that can't happen in a small gathering? Oh, everybody's... Huh? Connections. Like what kind? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So connections, because if I'm in a small group, I'm just connecting with the same people, like the same 12 every week, but in the large community, is that what you're talking about, Pat? I'm able to connect with people that maybe normally, I might run into somebody and start a new relationship or something. I'm able to connect with people here that I might not normally connect with, okay? What's another one? And I didn't even pay her for that. Like, I didn't promise her dinner or anything. She just did that. She might get a dinner out of it, though, huh? Yeah, there's a diversity in here. Again, when you're meeting in a small group, it's really easy to be like, hey, let's have all the, the uh, what are we, pat- empty nesters. We're going to have an empty nester group, or let's have a young married group, or let's have a singles group. It is so easy, and there's nothing wrong with that, but it's so easy to get together in like your own kind, and this gives us a chance to, be in, to meet in diversity, that maybe in a small group we can't. Not that a small group can't be diverse, but this gives us a lot of diversity. What else? What's that? Yeah, so it's corporate worship. Sarah, how's that different than maybe a small group worship? Okay, yeah, larger numbers together, all worshiping God. Um, Another thing that happens in here is, I mean, Robert, other than Robert or whoever's worshiping, or maybe I'm helping give some, some ideas, but we don't get to pick the songs, right? that's somebody else doing that, so instead of on the radio or maybe if I'm in my small group, I'm picking the music I like to listen to, but in here we're getting to hear things and worship God maybe in ways that I wouldn't, okay? I think it's the same way with teaching. In a small group, we could all get together and say, hey, we're we're young couples, so let's do a marriage study, and then we're going to do another marriage study and another marriage, and we'll do a parenting study, and you can kind of pick what you want to do, but when you come here, sorry, but you don't you don't get a choose. That's kind of me in the spirit and talking with leadership and stuff. So you're getting teaching that you might not on your own seek. So I think there's, there's also large service opportunities here that you're not going to get in the small group. Is that right? The ability to play drums like Eric does so awesomely or to do greeting or safety, just some of the stuff. The sound guys or coffee ladies, there's opportunities in here to serve that you don't have in the small group. How about the small group? What's that give me that this doesn't? What's that? Yeah, closer relationships. That's where you can really go deep. It's hard to go deep with, you know, the 500 and some that we have in here every week or the, what, you know, it's split in half, but it's, I mean, you can care about people, but it's hard to go deep in here, right? Just a quick conversation on the way out, hurrying to the Chiefs game or whatever, okay? It's harder. What else does a small group give you? Accountability, Accountability yeah, that you don't have in here. Because we don't sit in here and turn, well, maybe we should, you know, hey, turn to your neighbor and tell them what you're going to do this week, but gives you accountability. Somebody else had said something. What else does that small community give you? Do what? Depth of discussion. Depth of discussion. Yeah, which I never let you have in here, right? I mean, if you get discussion in here, it's just this, you're giving me a few things because it's just, it's just not really possible to do. But there you can have depth of discussion. You can give voice to what God's doing in your life. You can be hearing other people. And doesn't that impact you? I mean, I felt like in our small group last semester, uh, the good stuff is what happened in our group after the sermon that day, the ability to talk and hear what God was doing in each other's lives. The other thing is when I look at the New Testament and it talks about There's several, there's a lot of commands from Paul that are called one another's, like do this to one another, like love one another, encourage one another. There's just a bunch of those, serve one another. You can do that in here, but it's a lot harder in here to do the one another's. But in a small community, you can do the one another's, right? That's where you really love each other, serve each other. Last week in our small group, we got to pray as a group, and then somebody else that was needing it, we gathered around them at the end and prayed for them. Um, so, you get to do things like that. So, I think both of them are important. And Jesus, by the way, did both. We already know that He gathered with the twelve. But we're told in Luke 4, 16, this, that He went to Nazareth where He had been brought up and on the Sabbath day, He went into the synagogue, into the large corporate gathering, as was His habit. So, Jesus knew the value of both, of large community and small. So, they were devoted to fellowship. Uh, Sixth, they were engaged in loving service. We're told in Acts 4.34 there was no needy persons among them. Um, In Acts 6, we even see a practical example of how that body, the early church, was serving the widows in the community. So, a healthy church is one where all of the members are serving one another, all of us, not just some of us, not the twenty eighty that's normal, 28-20% do and 80 don't. It's a place where we all serve, a place where each of us uses our gifts and abilities to the benefit of the body. They also abounded in sacrificial generosity. We're told in Acts 2, 44-25, which is interesting because I guess I'm reading this backwards, huh? All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Look at the bolded words, by the way, like all the all's, the everything, the anyone, the everyone. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything that they had. There was no needy persons among them, for from time to time those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. So, a healthy church is marked by radical generosity, having been saved by a God who gave everything, who's radically generous, that we're willing to give of ourselves, not just in service to one another, but we're willing to give of ourselves, of our possessions and of our money in order to meet the needs of the community. That's what they were like. Eight, they were committed to God's mission. Acts 4.31 says, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the Word of God boldly. In Acts 4.33, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And we're told that the Lord, that's important, the Lord added to their number daily, daily those who are being saved. So, a healthy church is one that carries that sense of mission, that sense of sentness, which we'll talk about next week, in doing God's work in the world, living out, not just in. Um, They were concerned about taking the good news of Jesus to their community, to their nation, and to all nations. And they were willing to joyfully, to freely, to give of their time, their money, their energy in order to have a small part in joining God in His kingdom mission, which was restoring all things back to God, one person, one place at a time. So they were committed to God's mission. And then finally, they overflowed with joy and grace. Uh, This is one of my favorites, so much so that this is going to be our topic in March, the idea of God's grace and living in His grace, treating each other with grace. They overflowed with that. Acts 2.46, they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. It says, much grace was upon them all. And I'm convinced of this because I've been in both kinds of churches, a no-grace church, and a high grace church i've been in both and i know what they feel like and i know which one felt like jesus to me and which kind didn't and i'm convinced that a healthy church is one that understands god's grace and that the members treat each other with grace that they do not treat each other harshly or legalistically um that they treat each other that it's a place that's full of grace where People are accepted fully as they truly are, where they are in their journey, warts and all. That we treat each other with respect, with forbearance, with dignity at all times. And a church that is full of grace is a church that allows people freedom to walk with God in the way that He calls them to, as long as it's following Scripture, freedom to walk as He calls them, and which offers forgiveness when we fail. Because all of us are going to fall down and fail each other, right? None of us is perfect especially me. That's the kind of atmosphere that fosters love and it creates a deep sense of joy, the joy that they had, the gladness, I think, that when you have high grace, you have high gladness and high joy. So they overflow with joy and grace. I want to throw in four additional thoughts in this text. So let, can we do a quick review? Uh, pull out my notes. They were grounded in worship, dedicated to the Word of God, established in prayer, liberated from strongholds. They fostered deep koinonia, both in large gatherings and small. They were engaged in loving service, abounded in sacrificial giving, committed to God's mission, and they overflowed with joy and grace. Isn't that, aren't those nine great things? Yeah, can you imagine if a body reflected those things in a healthy way? So, the four other things I want to say. Number one is they lived in a sense of awe. That's something that stood out to me that says everyone was filled with awe. And I think to live in this kind of community where God is, is powerfully at work, they are deeply committed to each other, unified, moving forward with Him and He's powerfully at work, um, that is an awe-inspiring thing. And I know I could ask some of you, there have been times in our lives where all of us have been part of a group or a community of Jesus that it kind of felt awe-inspiring what God was doing. I've been in places like that, and um, we long, I think, for 12 to be that way, that we're in awe of what God is doing among us. They also lived empowered by the Spirit, because they were told they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And this is a whole nother sermon, but they were... Holy Spirit infused, on Holy Spirit empowered individually and corporately. I just talked to a guy this week who said that a lot of Baptists, but I don't think it's a lot of Baptists, I think a lot of Protestants are really kind of monotheists, and we rarely talk about the Holy Spirit, but they were, they were empowered by Him, and He was central to their life. Another thing that I really noticed is they were attractive to those around them, that were told that they were enjoying the favor of all the people, and that the Lord added number out of their number daily, those who are being saved. If we live in this way as a healthy, thriving community with these nine marks, we will be attractive to people who don't know Jesus, especially in our culture now where people don't really know what healthy community looks like. So many come from broken families, so many lonely people. I think the community, I know, it can be the most attractive thing to people. And that's why if you read a lot in evangelism, and do a lot in helping people come to know the Lord, that the old paradigm that when I first was a believer, I used to hear is, first somebody believes, and then you bring them into the church, and they can belong. It's always like winning them out there, but that uh, probably what's really actually always been true is that most people belong before they believe, and I've seen that so many times, that when somebody gets to be around people who follow Jesus, and be part of that community on their journey, that that belonging is really big in them believing, so they were attractive to those that were around them. And then the fourth thing, fourth thing I want to say, it doesn't come from this text, but it comes from Luke 6. It comes from Luke 6. Well, we're told that when morning came he called his disciples to him, and he chose twelve of them. And one of them that he chose was Judas Iscariot, who became what did he become? A traitor. Matthew and Mark say the one who betrayed him. By the way, have you ever noticed in movies about Jesus, like all the disciples look like really cool, happy guys you'd want to hang out with, and then they're kind of scanning around, and then they come to Judas, and he's always this really evil-looking guy, you know, you know, with a patch on his eye or something, and the music's all happy, but when it comes to Judas, you know, it gets like this weird music or something. I love this. I, you know, I typed in images of Judas. That was like the first one that popped up. That's what he looked like when Jesus chose him, you know, he was scowling at everybody. Um... Here's why this is so significant. Um, And again, if you haven't picked up this article in the back from Henry Nowen, from Solitude to Community Ministry, it's really powerful. Somebody told me they had broken it down into parts, and over several weeks, they're just doing a little bit of a day, a day. But he says something in here that I think is so true. And here's what he says, community is not easy. Somebody once said, community is the place where the person you least want to live with always lives. In Jesus' community of 12 apostles, the last name was that of someone who was going to betray him. That person is always in your community somewhere. And in the eyes of others, you might be that person. And so the fourth thing that I wanted to say is that person is always in your community. That person is in here right now. That person comes here regularly. Um, Because we said it when you mentioned diversity, this body is not of, th- who's in here is not of my choosing. I didn't go out in a pori and pick and say, I want you and you and you and you. God built this body. God's building this temple. He's put people in here. And guess what? He's put people in here that are going to rub me the wrong way because I need it. And he's going to put people in here that rub you the wrong way because we all need it. Because diversity, the kind of diversity he wants in his body, it demands that. That's just the reality. And the unity that comes through that kind of community is exactly what the world needs. You can ask Jason. I'm sure he sees this. Jason, I'm talking about you a lot today. But I don't know, where, where do they talk about diversity more than anywhere in Emporia, than Emporia State University, probably? But you go up to Emporia State University, and the reality is when you go up there, what I see in reality is you go to this little part of the union, and there's a group that's really alike together here. And then a group that's alike together over here and a group that's alike together over here. You know, you go out in the world and you really, there's, di- there's diverse people everywhere, but you really don't see a lot of diversity truly lived out, of people living in a community of diversity. But guess what the body of Christ is supposed to be? A diverse body of believers who are one in Him. And so this is the place that we can show the world that when you're living for something higher than yourself, when you're living for Christ that this can be the place where what they talk about can become reality. So I think it's really important that we have this ability to live with even that person being in our community, that person sitting across the room. And I want to challenge you and encourage you, when you get cross with that person, with someone in this body, don't bail on the body because it's a family, right? We don't just bail on family. You stick it out and you hang in there. Jesus did and it cost him his life. So, okay. So, that's what I see. Those are the nine things, the marks of a healthy community, just four additional things I saw. Um, I do want to say something about four relational spaces. There's a small group pastor in Ohio who's talked about four relational spaces that I have found very valuable to me. He says that there is um, what's called public space. This is usually groups that meet in the hundreds. This would be a public space. He talks about social space, which is usually about 50 to 70 people that get together. It's not, as, it's not in the hundreds. It's a little smaller, but it's still a group where you probably don't know a lot of the people. So, anytime we have a Pinterest night, we're creating a social space. If we have the men's chili cook-off, we're creating a social space. Youth group on Wednesday night would be a social space. Um, and those spaces are both large, Right? And we need large and small, correct? So those are important spaces. But John Eldridge reminds us something important about just large, because some people only do the large. Going to church with hundreds of other people to sit and hear a sermon doesn't ask much of you. It certainly will never expose you. That's why most folks prefer it, because community will ask much of you. It will reveal where you have yet to become holy right at the very moment you're so keenly aware of how they have yet to become holy. It will bring you close, and it will be, and you will be seen, and you will be known, and therein lies the power, and therein lies the danger. In our churches, no one is really being set free. He's talking generally. No one's really being set free. We have settled for safety in numbers, a comfortable, anonymous distance, an army that keeps meeting for briefings but never breaks into platoons and goes to war. Okay, we don't want that to be true of 12th, right? just always at the large meeting, but we're never getting beyond just the large. And so, that's why the final two social spaces, relational spaces are important. Personal space, which they say is about 8 to 15. And what kind of environment would that be at 12? Small group, a Bible study, um, that kind of thing. And then there's intimate space, which is usually 2 to 3, 3 to 4 people in your life who can be very intimately connected to you, who know you deeply, who know your, your joys, your fears, who know your struggles. Um, and I really believe that all four of those relational spaces are important, and I think I have found in my own life, I was just talking yesterday with Karen about this, that how important these four spaces are, and I think the need to be involved in four. There's times you've got to pull away from one, but I think that it's really important. Um, I know that it was important to Jesus because He ministered to the crowds. We're told in Luke, when it said, do you remember the passage? It says He brought the twelve, and when He came down, there was a large crowd of His disciples. We're told in Luke chapter 17 that it was seventy-two, so there was a group of seventy-two who followed Him, and then there was His personal space. He had His twelve, but Jesus also had His intimate. He had His three, Peter, James, and John. And of those three, he had one that he was very close to, and that was John. So, Jesus, all four of these relational spaces were important in his life. He lived in all of those. Okay, let me wrap up with this. Because Jesus' life is an example of life lived well in community. And to me, that first church in Acts, uh, not the ones after it in Ephesians and Colossians, but that first one is an example to us um, The deep authentic community for us to move not just from Christ but to live this rhythm that Jesus lived in the community. If you visit Redwood National Forest, how many of you have been to the Red, have seen Redwoods in California? I'm curious. How many of you have been to Redwood trees? They are amazingly beautiful. And when you're there, you're awestruck by how huge they are. Um, Grow to 20, 200 to 275 feet. And they're generally on the coastal areas very strong storms come in off the sea, but redwoods rarely fall down from the storms. They have very shallow root system. But the cool thing about redwoods is their roots are all intertwined and interconnected. So when the winds come, they're actually, though they have shallow root systems, they're holding themselves up. And that's why sequo- redwoods cover hundreds of thousands of acres used to in California. <coughs> How many of you seen a sequoia? Also very amazing and impressive. Um, they, they're in a much smaller confined area of California. They are singularly massive and singularly impressive. The thing about them is you'll, you'll see just like one standing there in the midst of other trees that, and they're just kind of big and fat and they're very impressive. <coughs> Our whole family, the footprint of Sherman, the largest, they have it drawn out and we were holding hands all the way across and we weren't quite as wide as Sherman was. That's how wide these, these sequoias are, they're huge. But they grow further apart, tend to grow alone. They'll be in other groups, but they grow, tend to be alone, and they also have very shallow root systems. (coughs) But their roots are not intertwined, they're disconnected. And when windstorms hit up there, sequoias are much easier to blow over. Uh, Two years ago, the pioneer cabin sequoia was blown over. A few years back, two in the the group of a hundred were blown over due to winds. You can either be a Redwood or a Sequoia. And I think in American culture, it's easy to be a Sequoia because individualism is so strong, right? I know for me, it is so easy to be the Lone Ranger guy, do things on my own, self-reliant, all of that. That's a lot of our models. Um, And though the Sequoias, they look grand, all isolated by themselves, and they do grab your attention. Um, We all... When we saw the redwoods, just north of Frisco, I felt like I was in an outdoor cathedral of God. It was like one of the most powerful things I'd ever been in. And our, our whole family kind of talked about this. You're just in this majestic place, place with these trees reaching high. And though the sequoias are impressive, the thing that captures your breath and takes your breath away, it's the redwoods for me, I think for all of us. And I just want to encourage you that we're meant to live as redwoods, not as sequoias. And that's, that's the, the purpose of the image that we have, is that we're to live as sequoia, as redwoods, not as sequoias. We're to be interconnected with each other deeply, passionately. Henry Cloud talked about that, uh, you know, anytime you're on your plane and you turn on airplane mode and then when you land, the first thing you're doing is you turn off airplane mode, right? And your phone starts, it says, searching. And it's searching for a connection. And he talks about that we're all designed by God to need connection and that we're all searching for it. And so I really want to challenge us as a community if we're going to live into this rhythm, we not only abide in Christ because He's the vine and we're the branch and if we abide in Him and He abides in us, then we'll bear much fruit. But without Him, we can do nothing. So we not only abide, but we also live deeply and richly into community with each other. That we live into the same rhythm as Jesus. And I used to tell internationals this all the time, and I found this, I saw it to be true. This is the first in the rhythm, but I have really found that community is the catalyst of my relationship with God. Um, a catalyst is something you add, in a chemical reaction, you add it, and it doesn't change anything, but it, it speeds up the reaction. And I have really found that if I'm walking in community with God, that it catalyzes my relationship with God. And anytime I pull away from community, it, 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 it has a negative impact on your ability to abide, to abide in Him. And we would tell students all the time, if you go home to China, to Japan, if you don't get in a community, your walk with God will falter, because community is the catalyst for that. So, it's really significant. So, let us, uh, let us not neglect community. Um, I'm not going to talk about the errors. I guess we could hit it really quick. The unbalanced life is I'm just one dimensional, this is all I do, which individually would just make me a social butterfly. If all 12th is about is gathering, then we're just a social club, right? That's all we are. But if we become unbalanced to where we neglect this and we're only about Christ and community, then we're just a service organization of loosely connected individuals, agents who are giving service but are not connected. So we don't want to live that unbalanced life. So are you growing in? That's the question. Are you growing in? Is there space in my life, is there space in your life for deep relationships and authentic community? Are you living connected to other believers, regularly spending intentional quality time with them? in all four spaces, not legalistic. There's times in my life I, I'm absent from one or space to the other, but that I'm in, I'm in that public space. I'm engaged in the social space. I'm engaged in that, that personal space of a small group, and I'm also engaged intimately with two or three. And if not, if you're neglecting any of these, what steps can you take this morning to be more intentional about incorporating them in, into your life? The early church wasn't perfect. I mentioned a minute minute ago, all you have to do is read Paul's letters. They were full of problems. Um, But people today are longing so deeply for authentic community. And I'm convinced if we could learn and to get better at living these nine things out here at 12th, if we could be known as a place of people who abide in Him and who live deeply in community, that I think we could be a powerful force in this city and in God's sending from us to the nation and into the world. So would you stand with me? I'd like to end with a prayer. And this prayer is on your bulletin. It's something that we encourage you to pray this week. Stick it in your Bible to pray daily. So would you join me in this prayer? Dear Father, thank you for my church. While some might think of doors and windows, I'm praising you for spirits and hearts. The people whose lives you've intersected are remarkable through Your grace, I can't praise You enough for the unique way You've blended the talents of individuals into beautiful masterpieces of joy. May we love one another to the fullest and be evidence of Your ultimate love to advance the work of Your kingdom." Can we pray those last three lines again? May we love one another to the fullest. And be evidence of your ultimate love to advance the work of your kingdom. And to that prayer, can you not say amen, which means so be it. Can we say that, Lord? So be it here. Let's do that. So be it here. So be it here. So, Father, make us that kind of community, not only people who abide in you and walk with you, but that we would all be intimately connected with each other in deep, authentic ways because that's where real life change happens is in walking with you, but walking deeply with others. So help us live into this reality. We need your power. It's only by your spirit that we can do this. So please fill us, empower us, infuse us with him so that we can be a light to the world. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So last week you were sent into abiding with Christ. This week I want to send you into community. So, you are sent.